that was one of the moments where like i was like ooh i kind of love this and i really want to do everything i can in this world Hello and welcome to Where the Living Room Used to Be, a podcast about Rhode Island's music scene. Hey everyone, it's James. For this episode, I connected with Chuck Staten of Senior Discount to talk about his long history in music and podcasting. In our interview, we cover how he went from starting a band before he even knew how to play guitar, to performing in front of thousands of fans on some of New England's biggest stages, and all the way up to getting signed to Paper and Plastic Records. We also discussed the role of creating entertaining videos early on with his bandmates, and what that meant for their success. Chuck continues to do a lot with video, working with some of the biggest names in comedy and film, He's also a co-host of the Fun Bearable podcast, which is presenting their Winter Funderland special at the Comedy Connection in East Providence on Sunday, February 25th. Tickets are available now at funbearablepod.com, and you'll learn more about all this in our conversation. Enjoy the episode, and please make sure to follow Where the Living Room Used to Be on Instagram, as I'll be posting some show photos, flyers, and more from Chuck's Time in Music. You are from Warren, Rhode Island, correct? That's right. I was born well, I was born in Providence, but yeah, I grew up in Warren until I was like five. And then I made the big move to Bristol, Rhode Island, which oh, was six yes. minutes down All the right. road. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and then when I was 17, I actually my family and I moved back to Warren. And yep. then when I moved out at 27, I bought a house in Warren. So yeah. Oh. <laughs> nice, <laughs> nice. I'm a Warren and Bristol guy for sure. Yeah, that's cool. No, it's fun. And- and yeah, what was it like for you growing up in in that area? Honestly, um, growing up here, it was really cool. I mean, at the time, you know, you don't really appreciate it or realize it, but I had a very, very like movie type of like classic growing up. Like you see, like ET, and when they go uh, trick or treating oh. on Halloween, it's like yeah, yeah, that was my life. I lived, you know, on a dead end street with like all these great neighbors and all these, you know, these very, very kind people in this very, very rural area. You know, I worked. My first job was at, uh, it was at Bullock's restaurant in downtown Warren, and I went to Benny's in Bristol, and then I went to to uh, Ciabra in Bristol, a grocery store. So everything oh, yeah. was so localized growing up, and I love that. I love that around the area, um, and uh, yeah, it was it was a very traditional, uh, like suburban growing up. I have you know my parents, and then three three brothers in the family: me, my brother okay. Denny, and my brother Sam, and. It was awesome. It was it was really really fun, and I think that as I grew older, I, I was able to really appreciate it more from afar. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I, I yeah. think it really it really made me uh, close to people in the area, which I think is kind of like a cornerstone of how I look at creativity as a whole. And I mean that led you know right down to the band. The band became the first big thing that I really spent a ton of time on, and it was all again people that lived locally that you become friends with over the years mm-hmm. or two. And I think it really informed my view on the idea of like a creative community and, and also okay. having a community and finding 
what everyone does creatively or what everyone's good at and and finding a way to incorporate all those things and work together and make a thing you know yeah absolutely yeah it was funny but, but yeah with regards to music like what uh what first sparked your interest in in music in general like uh was there a certain type like type of music that first caught your ear i think it's funny because my mom and dad grew up listening to like elvis costello and my dad loves Grateful Dead. Um, my mom loves Elton John. And I was into all that stuff. I was into uh, movie soundtracks. I was into Weird Al like crazy. Oh, awesome. Awesome. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> and then when I was 12, I asked for Green Day's Dookie for Christmas. Yeah. Um, I remember specifically because I got it Christmas morning and I had the cassette tape at the time and I'm, I'm looking through the lyrics all my me my two brothers who are younger than me uh my parents and my grandparents get in my my parents van to go somewhere for christmas and i'm reading mm -hmm. the lyrics to basket case by green day yeah i remember saying mom and like you know everyone's kind of in the car together and she's like what and i go what's a whore because <laughs> and they were like what did we get you for christmas and i all start flipping out because i asked that i remember that very specifically but yeah. Dookie was like the first album that really probably pushed me towards punk rock and also at that time no doubt tragic kingdom was coming out absolutely and yeah 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 it was it was it was a great time and i really got pushed into punk rock and third wave ska so mm -hmm. real big fish less than jake green day blink 182 uh no doubt and then eventually uh rancid less than jake the suicide machines choking victim like like all these different bands that kind of come with this and then you kind of slowly expand your little circle yeah that was that was like the big thing the green day no doubt got me into that stuff um and then i remember i went to this festival in fall river massachusetts and there was a band there playing called sea monkey stew which okay they were a band for they were a local band to providence and they weren't huge but it was really the first time i saw like people that are like we're from here and we're playing this music and before that there was always kind of like okay well here's all the regular people and then here yeah. are the cassettes or cds that i buy and these are bands but yeah, i yeah. never was like oh wait like this guy that works down the street can be in a band or this person you know that that i just go to school with can be in a band and sea monkey stew was basically my link from I like the world of punk rock and music in general. I, I, I liked a lot of bands. I liked Sublime. I liked Dave Matthews Band at the time. Like, there's a lot of bands I liked, but punk rock was the biggest thing. Seabunk mm -hmm. Stew pulled me into the local scene, and I started going to shows at the Met at that time. It was the it was the very very small Met next to yeah uh, next, next to Lupo's. yeah yeah, and that really led me to Monty's Fan Club, which to me oh, okay. that they were the cornerstone of me actually thinking that maybe i could be in a band because yeah they were killer um somebody stew was killer they were killer and i kept going to see monty's fan club they kept playing and eventually when i was probably i think i was a senior in high school i was friends with kevin silva who was on this uh, podcast before yeah um, he uh he had or he had started playing bass probably like way younger i'm, I'm imagining you probably started around like 12 or 13 and I didn't play guitar, I didn't play any instruments, but when we were seniors in high school, we started hanging out, and then right when we graduated, like I'm talking like early June, yeah, he was okay. basically like, let's start a band, let's do it. And and at the time, I didn't play guitar, and my cousin, what? yeah, okay. I never, 
and my cousin Christian, Christian Staten, who is uh, the drummer of, he was the drummer of Senior Discount. He's the drummer of the Warren Kids. You know, yep. he was the drummer of uh, No Plateau. He didn't play drums. And Kevin's parents had uh, a basement that was finished in this little corner. They had a drum set. And uh, for my graduation present for my parents, I asked for a guitar, even though I couldn't play it. Wow. And we just started practicing anyway. <laughs> we were like, let's just try. And so I'm doing my dumb power chords, like barely even being able to stretch my index finger over to do that second note. And like, yeah, it, it was ridiculous. But what was cool uh, was that we actually, because we just got out of school at that time, it was kind of perfect because we practiced five days a week like all summer long. Oh, okay. So it was kind of, that was our crash course into learning exactly. instruments. Did you do any research into guitar? Like, did you get any books on, on how to, like, how did you even learn what chords to play? So here, what was interesting is my dad always had an acoustic and okay. I, I wanted to go learn how to play guitar when I was like 12, but I was playing a lot of basketball. And I remember I went to one guitar lesson and then I was playing basketball and I broke uh, the middle finger on my left hand. Okay. And they were like, you have to wait like six weeks till you come back to guitar. And I was like, okay. And I waited the six weeks. And right when I was about to go back, I broke it again. <laughs> and I think at the time, you know, right now, if you're like, oh, you got to wait six weeks, you, you know, as adults, we're kind of like, okay, whatever. Dude, when you're 12, six weeks oh. is like, I'm going to be 50 by then. You yeah, know I mean? yeah, exactly. Like, it doesn't even exist for you. So, um, I, I think I had like a little bit of an idea and then it was one of those things where because I liked Green Day and Blink-182, you know, some of the songs were manageable by a complete novice, you know, mm -hmm. like you listen to something like um, like Blink-182's Damn It was kind of their first bigger single. And as a novice, even if you can't play guitar, you can look it up and you can say, OK, like with tabs online, you can just Google it. Yeah. And be like, okay, I guess I can do and you're playing it really slow and it's really, you know, <laughs> pretty shitty. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but you kind of, that kind of gets you going, which I, which I honestly think that one of the things I love about punk rock, because punk rock is my thing. I really believe in it. I believe that punk rock kind of represents what music is in general. Um, I think that it was really helpful that I liked that because it was accessible mm -hmm. where, you know, if I was like, man, my favorite band's dream theater, I think yeah. I would have been, you know, like, <laughs> well, I guess I'm not going to be a musician. You know yeah, I mean? exactly. Yeah. Um, but I think because there was stuff like that, we could practice stuff that was very simple. And mm -hmm. also Kevin who played bass, but also played acoustic guitar and regular guitar, electric guitar. I think he was able to be like, well, here's a power chord. And, I want to play this song. It only has three different parts. It's a verse, a pre-chorus, and a chorus. So we would just kind of hammer that out. And at first it's yeah. slow and it's very choppy. And uh, we slowly just kind of had to make our own relationship to the instruments and kind of learn them that way, which which I actually think makes you uh, a more unique songwriter. Exactly. Yeah. You, that's you know what, what I mean? As well, like rather than like... I know what I'm I've I've learned from this book or I'm mm -hmm. learning exactly how this other band plays their their pieces precisely. Right. You needed to just kind of figure this out and be like, this sounds cool. This sounds good enough. This sounds, you know, yes. like 
what and and it just had its own unique twist yeah to it. yeah you start you start thinking about notes in a specific way where like you know if you learn scales and you learn chords you learn the relationships like from a technical standpoint mm -hmm. but i think when you say well i'm going to learn this and i'm going to try to write my own songs you start building your own connections between notes and between riffs and and between uh, chord progressions and i think it's fun you're probably not as good as a musician technically but you might kind of create something that's a little bit more personal in your relationship to that music yeah um, so it's a, it's a really interesting thing but i think we just did that i think we just said we love all these bands we love you know we love punk rock we love this type of music and we love these songs and so we just kind of forced ourselves to hammer it out i remember we didn't even have a mic stand we had a really old rickety camera tripod and we had <laughs> two microphones on it one going to, to the left one going to the right and we had to kind of like tape them to just it tape it or whatever yeah yeah <laughs> and they went to a guitar amp and that's how we sang at the time like we would each have an amp and we'd have the singing amp and christian's drums and that's what we did we did it five days a week and we just grinded it out all summer and that's how we learned how to play instruments yeah and like what year was this when did this, you this, graduate i graduated 2002 so it was it was june 2002 is when the band started which really is crazy that it was 22 years ago because that's more than half of my life at this point yeah <laughs> yeah but yeah it was it was crazy and before that i think i always was like man i'd love to be in a band i'd love to be in a band but it just seemed like learning to how to play an instrument was so daunting and and i mm -hmm. also you know you grow up learning like the recorder in school and stuff like that yeah. and that stuff can be really really excessively boring so it could turn people off and i think that that for sure happened to me but um when i got over that hump of like well you just play and obviously you have you go through the whole thing of like my fingers hurt oh i'm gonna get mm -hmm. calluses but i just have to keep trying um you know you go through all that stuff and i think we just pushed through because it was honestly because it was so fun and it was such a bonding experience between friends mm -hmm. you know I, I always think that like one thing i'm thankful for and i think it's really hard to create this or manufacture this all of my leisure time ever since i was able to choose how to spend my leisure time like when you're starting to be like 12 yeah i always wanted to make a thing always yes. make a yeah. thing it was like what can this friend do it's like they're good at this what can this friend do and it was like let's get together and make a thing i mean it started out with sketches like video sketches of you know i remember me and me and christian my, my drummer who we, we've been best friends since we were born in the same summer he was born in june i was born in august we've been hanging out since we were in cribs and yeah. we would make these sketches called like the day everyone fought and it would be these dumb <laughs> fighting sketches where we build a dummy and we go to throw someone out the window and it cuts the dummy coming out the window and it was just always that it was always let's make a thing and i think it started with film projects and yeah. uh, we did backyard wrestling for a while but more like more like comedy backyard wrestling not like broken glass and knives like, or something yeah yeah barbed <laughs> wire or whatever yeah yeah we were like we actually i actually my buddy jordan Furtado, who who is one of my best friends he's been around since then and actually lives in my house with me now i remember we would do like comedy wrestling where like i one time i i sliced uh a lemon in half and i put my fingers in the lemon and then i poked him in the eyes and, like, uh -huh. <laughs> stuff we did in our wrestling it was just it was just for comedy but yeah it turned into the band for sure it was like oh we're out of school 
oh, we have like Monday through Friday all during the day to do whatever we want. Like, yeah, let's learn guitar and 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 play these songs that we love and eventually hopefully go and play shows. And it was yeah. like the best way to spend our time. Yeah. How soon did you play a show after all of that that practice time? Like, do you remember your first performance and what it was like from your perspective? I think what we did was we started in June 2002 and the next year, um, we actually went back to our high school and played our talent show as the uh, as our first show. And it was because we had our buddy at the time, Alan Souza, be a second guitarist. I think we were at the time, you know, we, we Senior Discount was the name of the band. And we started out as a three piece. And okay. when you're a three piece, I think you kind of quickly learn that you probably need a fourth person um, <laughs> or, or if you're, or, or if you're very successful, like the band alkaline trio, you can get backing tracks and you can do all that stuff. But obviously when you're amateur musicians with no money, that's not really an option Yeah, in 2002. Um, and uh, so we had our buddy, Alan Souza come in and, and do it and be a second guitar. And so mm -hmm. because he wasn't still in high school at Mount hope, Mount hope high school in Bristol, Rhode Island, that was our first show. And we did that talent show. And then soon after, we actually played a bar. I think it was called Morin's. And I don't know if it's around. I never went there before. I never went there afterwards. But the way that we started trying to book shows was that we literally opened a phone book and looked for any bar that said that they had live music. And we called the first one. Yeah. Oh, okay. And you got, <laughs> hey, that's a good success rate right there. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I've booked, I've booked yeah. a lot of tours and I've had a very low success rate. So I'm glad you started off with that. But yeah. every step of what I've done, what I've done is like the stupidest, most base version of like, yeah, if you're just a layman and you're trying to do this thing, what would you do? Yeah. That's you also, what I did. I'm assuming hearing this, you had no idea what kind of live music because, you know, now that we're adults and I mean, you knew this before that, but it's like maybe they might not like pop punk music there they're yeah. like yeah we book live music but we're a country you know bar or we're a, a jazz bar or whatever else it is you know but you're like will you book my band you know <laughs> yeah and, and, and like 90 percent of bars they probably wanted a cover band to be yeah, honest yeah. <laughs> you know what i mean like that's yeah. the, as i got further into the career of music i'm like oh you can't just if you're playing bars on the weekend like they want cover bands they don't want original bands to go play there you know because like at the time they were like Oh, can you play, you know, for 90 minutes, then take a 20 minute break and then play more, which is yeah. not how actual shows are. That's how cover bands play. Yes, um, yeah. We're like, oh, that's weird. And we and we did it. But yeah, so they probably wanted a cover band, probably weren't, you know, super psyched <laughs> on what we were. But we actually because, you know, we were just starting out and we just came from high school. We had a lot of friends. So our first show had all of our friends at it. And, yeah. um, you know, it, it was it was incredibly fun. I'm sure we were unbearably bad, um, but it was great. It was, it was, it was really fun. And I think that that was one of the moments where like, I was like, Ooh, I kind of love this and I really want to do everything I can in this world. You know, that's cool. That's cool. Yeah. It was, it was great. It was very fun. Yeah. And when did you start recording? Like, was that a, a big part of, uh, a part of the band? I think that right then we decided because I think we we started out with doing covers, but not really playing them live. Like we would play. I think that's how we learned how to play instruments is we'd play all these different songs. But we didn't really, you know, we didn't want to be a cover band. And mm -hmm. so live, we did start writing songs really quick. And I think we had about six or seven songs that were, you know, very, very, very amateur um, that we would play at our shows. And I remember we did save up money 
and go to a recording studio for like maybe three hundred dollars. I think the I think the first time we recorded was at a place called Groundswell in Barrington. I'm not sure, but I that was one of the places we recorded. Okay. And I think we did three there, and then we went to the call. Um, I don't know if you remember that place in Providence. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it was and they next would, to what uh a skew is now. Um, yes, it, it's, yeah. it became the fat squirrel, right? Well, that that was the century lounge. Oh, okay. So but the call was you know right. on the other corner of that building. That uh, makes the last sense. call saloon was the full name prior to that, and then it got shortened ah. to the call. Oh, and see, then, some inter that's interesting. I like yeah. that. But I then like yeah, the century lounge became yeah, fat squirrel, and yeah, now it's a skew, and I think it might have been something else in between, possibly that, but yeah. Right. Um, but yeah, so you went to that that venue. Well, they did an open mic night on Mondays, and they would record you if you paid them. And so, oh, cool. Yeah, we we professionally, you know, professionally, uh, in parentheses, recorded three songs in a recording studio, and then we went to the call and did three more like live. Mm -hmm. And I think what we did immediately was burn those songs to a CD and start passing them out as like demos at local shows and. Over the years, that kind of became the thing that I think really helped us uh, spread, get our name out there and actually get the people that came out to our shows to come out and kind of build the following around New England um, was just being really dedicated to burning those demos, hitting the streets and being at every show where someone could possibly like us and giving putting a demo in that person's hand. Okay, so you, like, you'd go to like other punk shows and be like, hey, just like check out my band check out my band here's a cd oh we would do yeah. this is exactly what we would do we would wait until staples had a big sale on cdrs and okay we'd buy hundreds and hundreds of them and we would just burn them we would burn like okay we're gonna burn three so three songs and we'd handwrite them i have i have a million pictures of all of us burning cds like our friends at the time our girlfriends at the time and just handwriting senior discount and usually what we do is we print out a flyer for like the next show we have and we put it in the CD oh, okay. in the sleeve. And I'm not kidding when I tell you over the years, we passed out more than 20,000 demos. And I know that for a fact. That's incredible. <laughs> it was, it was really, it really helped us a lot. And we would do like, we would be like, all right, warp tour is coming up. Like we got to do a thousand. And so each band member would do like 250, like there was four of us eventually. And we'd bring them to Warp Tour. We'd go to Warp Tour, of course, and then we'd yeah. stand at the entrance and we'd hand out all a thousand until we're done. And you just hope those people don't throw it away, which a lot of people did. Uh, and you hope those people, you know, either go to your show or go to your website or whatever at the time, because there wasn't even really like Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. That stuff didn't exist. It was yeah. seniordiscountmusic.com, seniordiscountmusic.com on yeah. everything. And you hope that they would go to your website. Or yeah, it was MySpace. Maybe I don't even know. I guess yeah, we we had around a, that time, but yeah, it was around MySpace. But even MySpace was like, you know, it was like it felt limited. It felt like yeah, uh, it was less of a promotional tool because, from my point of view, with social media, social media eventually became the thing where you see all the updates and you see all the things. But MySpace at the time, it was way more like if you want to know what's up with a band or a person, or whatever, you have to go to their MySpace and look at it. Actively, yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we'd, we'd have, we, we would have the MySpace link to our, uh, webpage for sure, but yeah, it was always the website and that's actually right away. That's why we started doing uh, film projects. Yeah. Well, okay. We're like, well, people are going to come to our website. Like if someone lives in Connecticut and we just have like a couple of Rhode Island shows coming up or something, it's like, they're not going to have a chance to see us. They're not going to care. And also we thought at the time, right when we started, there are so many other bands 
they're all so much better than we are. <laughs> we have these two microphones taped to a tripod. Um, what can we do to stand out and create an identity for ourselves? And because we'd always been into comedy and filmmaking and, and doing that stuff since we were kids, we said, well, why don't we do like a thing where we combine this punk rock world of our live shows and our recordings with comedy videos that we can use to promote that stuff. And so yeah. all of that promotion of the demos, the website and the videos, it kind of went hand in hand and it started immediately. Yeah. 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 Uh well, I guess just before we, I, I definitely want to talk about all the, the video work that you've done, but are there any memorable times of meeting someone that did get one of those demos and, and came to a oh, show? Yeah. Like, were you, can you like talk about those instances of like how, um, like the positive outcomes of all that grinding that you guys did? Oh yeah. It was, it was really crazy. Like I, I specifically remember we went to the Dunkin' Donuts Center at one point in time and we passed out demos at good charlotte and like good charlotte like I, I you know i have a lot of respect for anybody who isn't a, is a musician and 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 really plays and tours and writes their own songs i never got into good charlotte i just never really got into them personally mm -hmm. um but it was like a style you know it was a band that was in our style of music and so we passed out a ton of demos and i remember specifically at that show there were so many people that i've handed a demo to one-on-one -on -one, that i saw at our next show I remember specifically that's that was one cool. of the ones where I was like, this is very helpful. This is a thing we need to keep doing. Mm -hmm. I, I really do think that that's one of the things that did set us apart a little bit in terms of promotion from other bands. Yeah. But what was weird is like when, when I was coming up before that, because I probably got into local music around the age of like 14 and I didn't start the band. We didn't start the band until I was almost 18. Mm -hmm. So there were four years of local shows that we were just going to as fans and i felt like monty's fan club sea monkey stew those bands m80 uh turning blue i felt like those bands were doing the same thing they were like we didn't be like oh let's let's come up with this and do it i feel like we did it because we're like oh this is what you're supposed to do you're supposed to yeah. go to all these shows pass out flyers pass out demos and yeah. for us it was like a default setting of like we're this band how would someone new know about us and know to go mm -hmm. to our show unless they get our music put into their hand? Um, so it was always something that we thought was worthwhile right away, but we for sure saw people uh, turning up from it and having relationships with us in terms of saying, you know, commenting on MySpace or saying to our faces, I got your, dem your demo at uh, real big fish, uh, you know, at Lupo's. I got your demo at this, and I love this song. And a lot of specific songs, and, and a, a lot of our songs, I think people gravitated towards because they were on the demo. So it was a lot easier for them to re-listen to those songs as opposed to just seeing stuff live. Yeah. But, oh yeah, for sure. It it was it was uh, for sure very very worth it. And it's funny because now promotion is so weird via like mm -hmm. social media that it's all so much noise and it's so hard to cut through. And there's really, to me, like there's no way to replicate what we were able to do at that time with these physical CDs and handing them to people where they could just walk to their cars and put it in their CD player if they felt like it.
you know, I heard you describe the video projects that you'd work on. It was kind of like the monkeys because it, you know, encapsulated the band itself, yes. but it was, you know, had elements of like jackass and like sunny yeah. in Philadelphia. So yeah, yeah. Can you talk about what videos you're making, what some of the content was and how frequently you were doing it. And, and yeah, just right. talk about, um, what this video project was with what senior discount. Well, I can't state enough how much Monty's fan club meant to us and to me, how much they influenced the entire local scene at that point in time, because they were mm -hmm. such hard workers and they were so serious and they were so welcoming. Cause I feel like the hardest thing for me in the music scene has been like elitism. And people mm -hmm. saying, you're other, we're going to push you away. It was so foreign to me because to me, the world of creativity is about gathering. Yeah. But sometimes when you get into the world of music, there's a lot of people pushing you away and saying, you're not good enough. You're not this type of this. You're not this shot, whatever. And I always fucking hated it. And I continue to hate it. And I think that the people that do that are the people that don't go that far, really. Uh, mm -hmm. But Monty's fan club was like, you guys are young and dumb and, and bad. <laughs> Let's bring you in. You know Sounds good. You know, yeah. <laughs> but they were they were hard workers and they and they showed us what to do. But the reason I bring it up is because they got us our first show, which was at a VFW hall, I believe in like Warwick or Cranston. And then they played uh the strand, uh, which was still, I think, Lupo's at the strand at the time on okay, June 25th, yeah. 2004. And they said to us, they let they invited us to be on the show. And awesome. which was huge. That was the first like big venue we'd ever had played, obviously. And they asked us to sell tickets for the show. And it wasn't like this wasn't like a pay to play thing where we had to like, you know, give them money, buy the tickets, make the money back. They were just like, do you guys think you could sell 125 tickets to this show? And we said yes. And then we walked away and said, how are we going to possibly do this? Mm -hmm. and we had talked about the video production and we had already been making videos for fun previously. But that specific show is where we said, well, what if we made a funny video about why you should go to this show? You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like we wanted it to basically be the concept was just like, you should go to this show. You're going to say you're going to go to the show and you're not going to go. Here's why you should. And we would go through all the reasons. And we kind of came up with these like funny conceits of why. It was really short. I think it was like six minutes long. But we did it specifically to spread the word to sell those tickets. Mm -hmm. And that was a turning point i think because we did sell all the tickets we played the show and from then on we kind of made it a thing but what the the real issue came with at the time you know we're shooting with a handy cam there's no microphones we're just shooting oh, okay like, yeah in a room you know the production value was less than nothing and we started doing videos here and there so let's say we would do like you know if, especially because you're right we did do like pranks um, like jackass type of stuff mm -hmm. as well as scripted comedy. So it would kind of go back and forth. And, you know, so one month we might do a video about how we filled our guitarist room with pumpkins for Halloween <laughs> and he came home and his room was overflowing with pumpkins. And that was like a, a, a prank thing. And we'd use that to promote a show. But then the next month we might do one that's more about like, uh, like a little bit of a, a loose storyline of something funny that happened to us. And we're promoting the show in a different way. So at first we were probably doing it, I would imagine maybe once a month, once every six weeks, and they're really okay. based around the shows we had, the dates we had, or maybe the releases, the you know the the music we had coming out. But then, as time went on, it became like, you know, we need to get microphones, 
You know, we need mm-hmm. to get lights. You know, we need to get more cameras. And the production time just increased so much. And there's this weird thing I always think about with with creativity and art, where it's like when you're younger, you just want to make a thing. You don't really care how the quality is. You just want to like speak your truth, whatever it is. It could be filmmaking or music or anything. And then as you get older, you try to make it a little bit more professional, but your life also gets filled up with more responsibilities slowly. So you have less time and your art demands more time. And Mm -hmm. it's this really, really difficult balance. But that's basically what happened to us is that I think at the beginning we were probably doing a video every, you know, month or six weeks. And then it would be every two months. And then it would be every three months. Then it'd be every six months. Then it'd be every nine months. And so over the life of the band, I think we made around, I'd have to guess like 75 to like 85 videos. Okay. Um, you know, which is which is a lot. And they're yeah, very definitely. varied, you know. And some of that stuff is just straight up music stuff too as well. Um, but it was, uh, as as we wanted to make the production value higher, it got harder to do because it was harder to set aside the time to do so. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, so so right away we kind of were doing them uh in pretty quick succession, honestly with not a lot of thought behind them. And it's funny because now in 2024, like the idea of like, oh, a band made a funny video to promote something. You're like, yeah, yeah, of course, they're on YouTube, whatever. It's like, no, no, no. This is like pre-YouTube being one one thousandth as big as it is now. I think YouTube might have started in 2004. Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. I was even thinking that. I was like, where did you even put these? You know, because it wasn't like the social media, exactly. You know, giants that were around of that of video hosting. You know, so exactly. So we had to buy a server, and we had we had already had access to a server. We bought one, but it was you know you had a very very small amount of memory on the server just to host uh, pictures on our website, like flyers and information, and we had to buy more space. And we would make the video, turn it into like, you know, a Windows media file, put it on the server and put a link on the website so you could watch it on the website. There was no YouTube. There was no streaming video like that. It was just like you'd have to watch it through that. It's the only way to do it. So it was very novel at the time. Um, Mm. We kind of felt like there wasn't a lot of other bands doing it. We, you know, act to be completely honest, part of our goal the entire time was to get every band in the Rhode Island scene to come be part of what we're doing. We we oh, loved cool. we loved multi-genre shows. Like I think that they're way superior to having just one genre the entire time. I think it's more fun for the audience. I think it expands the taste of the people that are there. I think you get exposed to more different types of music. Um and we kind of had the same view on the videos. And we we did a couple. We did one show where we were we did one video where we were doing a big show and the bands on it were Someday Providence, um, mm-hmm. Arcadia Landing, which was originally Slick Willie, same band, different name, who knows why. And <laughs> I think, let's see, who? Oh, and Lem Lime Tennis Shoes, uh, which okay, was yeah, yeah. amazing, amazing ska band from the area. And now Matt Kelly, who is the lead singer of Lemon Tennis Shoes, is, is in Senior Discount. He's the lead guitarist. Um, and we said, we're going to do this show with all of us. Let's all make a video. And we made three separate storylines of us interacting with each different band. And it was like, well, this storyline is about how Someday Providence does not want to do the show because of all these terrible things we did in the past. And we'd film all these <laughs> back moments. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we're trying to convince them to do the show. Yeah. It's all these different things like that. And so we were able to successfully do it. I know. And then at, actually at the end of that video, as like a little kind of like Easter egg thing, we had all the bands in it. And at the end, 
we go and talk to Monty's fan club, who at that point in time was way too big to play with us. At that time, they were signed to Island Def Jam. Yeah, but, but they agreed to be in the video, and that we had a little scene with them, and it was really, it was uh, really, really fun. But yeah, we wanted to bring everybody in in the same way and kind of make this a whole little world because we realized right away, oh, it's cool. Like people come see our shows and they shout out things from the videos. They shout out like catchphrases and and funny moments, and they bring this up. And I'm like, that's really cool. And I don't, I don't think other bands really have that opportunity because they don't get to be funny. They don't get to kind of put their personalities on display in this mm -hmm. you know inflated way so to me it was just like let's all get involved let's get john from club hell involved let's yeah, get yeah. every band we play with the bookers everybody and uh we did as much of that as we could um i think some bands were really like wait what are you doing and they were just so confused by it and it was strange so i understand that yeah um, yeah but it really was like let's just bring everybody in that we can and make this kind of like a big family thing. That was always kind of how we looked at it. Yeah, that's great. And you made a movie. Was that uh, a, a, a separate thing? Like, a, or was it kind of a compilation of a lot of these things or, um, well, you talk was, about the yeah that experience, the senior discount movie. Can you talk about that? <laughs> yeah. So, so the videos were doing really well. People really enjoyed them. They thought they were, they were really fun. And we would kind of consistently film and sometimes we'd retroactively figure out how to put out the filming and yeah. um so many people liked the videos and, and the shows were going really well for for a regional band that we were like well let's make a big movie with a bunch of our our, our biggest stuff and we had i'd say the movie was probably maybe like 10 percent previously released stuff but vast okay. majority brand new stuff and we were like let's make it a documentary but with a lot of fun stuff, all true stuff. All, you know, the documentary parts are all true, but then we're going to go and do stunts and pranks and that kind of like jackassy stuff that we did. Yeah. And we were like, we'll see, you know, maybe we can do a screening of this and that'll be really fun. And then we'll have at our shows, we'll have a seat, you know, our audio CD had come out in 2006. It was called There Were Four Who Tried. Mm -hmm. And our merch was just that one CD and then maybe like three shirts at the time. And we were like, well, after we do this movie, now we'll have a DVD too. And that's really interesting and fun. And so when we go play these shows, we'll have our merch table and we'll have a CD and a DVD. And that's going to stand out a little bit maybe. And maybe someone will be like, oh, that's interesting. The band has a DVD. That's cool. So we filmed all these like stunts and pranks. Uh, we did this thing where uh, my buddy, Brian Kamara, um, we were like, we're going to have a mayonnaise eating contest between you <laughs> and our buddy, John Cabral. But in John Cabral's mayonnaise jar, we had cleaned it out and filled it with vanilla yogurt. So they're across the table from each other, and John's killing it, just eating yogurt. And Kamara on the other side eating the mayonnaise is trying to match him, but he's eating mayonnaise and he has no idea. So it's yeah. like these kind of fun, like stunts and pranks and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And um, we did the movie premiere in 2007, I believe, at yeah. the Providence Place Mall. And it was it was the biggest theater in the showcase at the time. It was like 350 people and we sold it out, which was awesome. But it was like Very I think cool. it was like almost two thousand dollars to rent it for that night. So, you know, we sold, you know, we sold tickets, I think, for ten dollars each. So it's like we walked away. I remember we walked away with about fifteen hundred dollars and it was exactly <laughs> how much we needed to get the DVDs made. Oh, and, cool. And so it was kind of like, okay, we did this. We, we paid for the rental of the theater and we paid for the DVDs to be made. And we all made zero dollars, just like we always do. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. yeah it, out again. <laughs> it was really about 
<laughs> it was always about can we avoid losing money? That's yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was never about making a dollar. It was about yeah. can we hold on to the one dollar we have. Yeah, um, but uh, yeah. So that was that was a huge huge thing. I actually I have a bunch of I have a bunch of pictures from that night. It was such a, it was such an amazing night because it was the band, and we just always were so lucky and blessed to have this very close friend group around the band. I mentioned Jordan Furtado earlier. He was mm -hmm. one of those people. Ben Chauvin was one of those people where they would we all be at the shows together. We'd all be filming together. People that went, came to our shows knew these guys from the videos. And we had this group that was essentially, you know, I hate to think of us as just a jackass ripoff, but like that part of it for sure was. There was 10 of us and we were fucking crazy. And some of us did disgusting shit. Some of us did dangerous shit. We all had different roles. And like, I, first of all, I try to suppress these DVDs of this thing because like we're going to get canceled for sure if yeah, these okay. DVDs are out. Luckily, I had a house fire in 2015 and the remainder of the DVDs are, you know, up in heaven. But, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, and, and, and I, you know, it, it was, it was, it's, it's, it was so much fun. It was so great. And, at the movie premiere, I just remember, like, I remember we had uh, we had like the middle, you know, ten seats all reserved for all the guys in the movie, and I remember uh, Kevin, given our bassist Kevin Silva at the time, his parents were like, "Oh yeah, you're going to have a movie premiere." Oh yeah, like they were kind of like making fun of the idea that we would have a movie premiere, and they walked in and the whole thing was sold out, and there yeah. was nowhere for them to sit, and they looked at me, they're like, "Where do we sit?" And I was like. Fuck you <laughs> for standing up and yeah. giving them the double bird and be like, fuck you, Mr. Silva. Um, because of how they talked about it. And uh it was one of the best nights of my life. It was just it was so much fun because there was so much support. And honestly, I, I did the pictures the other day because I was telling someone about it. The guys from Monty's fan club came to the premiere. That's how that's how fucking awesome they were. Yeah. Steve was the lead singer. Steve Aiello was lead singer. He's in 30 seconds to Mars now. Yeah, like yeah. That, that's that's where he's gone. And by the way, I talked to him like a couple months ago. They they were so instrumental. I can't I can't sing their praises enough. But uh, yeah, that was the movie premiere was awesome, and we got the movie out of it, so we were able to sell DVDs afterwards mm -hmm. and kind of introduce us, people to us that way. And it's cool because like you know, like I said, we we never cared about making a dollar, so we're we're touring around the East Coast up and down, and we're saying, all right, it's uh it's ten dollars for a CD, ten dollars for a DVD, and ten dollars for a shirt or $15 and you get everything. You know what I mean? And, and we, yeah, we, yeah. honestly, we were like, we'll pay you if you will watch this movie or listen to our album. Yeah, um, yeah. And uh, it was great to have that thing to kind of set us apart. Again, right along that path of, of just being like, can we create a little bit more of an identity than the next four guys mm -hmm. that are okay at music like we are? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I mean it's taken you to some pretty incredible places that you're just talking about. Yeah, uh, the the trips out of town you were able to take. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd love to hear about yeah some of the the bigger shows you did. You know, uh, there, oh, there yeah. like there was like a lot of um, you know, connection with Badfish, and mm -hmm. you were doing these big shows at Lupo's on mm -hmm. what seemed like an annual basis. Um, and then well, you know, talk about that. But it, you know, you eventually got signed to uh, a really admirable like super respected uh like sought after punk label paper and plastic so i'd love to talk yeah. about that as well but yeah can you just talk about the 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 shows and just how you went from you know 
not even knowing how to play guitar uh, <laughs> when the band started to, you know, playing these major shows in front of thousands of people yeah. um, in, in your hometown. Uh, it was it was so much fun. So we kind of started out, like I said, we were kind of opening the phone book and, 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 you know, finding any bar that would play music. And quickly, we kind of realized that there, like we knew that there was a local scene in the bands like Monty's Fan Club and Sea Monkey Stew and Turning Blue was a band at that time. You're, you said you said Bad Fish, M80, by the way another mm -hmm. amazing punk band you know they're doing yeah. a they're doing a reunion show like like coming yeah. up next month it's already sold out it's already oh. sold out though. oh it's already sold out wow okay that's yeah. amazing i love those guys are also not only great guys what a talented group of guys like that mm -hmm. band is we were so lucky to have that band in rhode island just like all the other bands i was talking about but yeah but yeah, they're they're playing at Ocean Mist. Uh, they're doing a reunion, so maybe they'll add some more stuff. So check them out. But yes, yeah, I they're, hope they're so. active again. So on, check them out on Instagram. Check them out wherever. Yeah, support them. If the, if the show is sold out now and this is like early Feb, let's dude. If I was them, I'd say do a second show because mm -hmm. man, that's that's amazing. I love that they're doing that. But pretty quickly we realized there was like a local scene. At first we were kind of like we're senior discount. We'll go play a bar, and that's that was it. Then it became like, oh, like, well, we can talk to Bad Larry. That was another band that was mm -hmm. extremely talented, way more talented than we are, um, and full of great people that I really loved. Music that, like, I look at the like bands like Real Big Fish, Less Than Jake, and I don't think of it as different than like Bad Larry and Monty's Fan Club. I, I don't, I really don't even see a difference in the quality of what they're producing. And it was so amazing to have those guys around us to help create a scene honestly mm -hmm. we realized that there was kind of a scene of people coming up and at that time a lot of those bands were really young bad larry um like slick willie was another band at that time someday providence came later you know with paul from bad larry lemon lime tennis shoes m80 all those bands kind of had were playing here and there so we started playing these shows like maybe a benefit show at roger williams or uh, uh an afternoon show uh, on the, on the day of a Zox concert at URI or something like that. Okay. Yeah. You know, and we started reaching out to WBRU and saying like, Hey, can we come on? They're like, absolutely not. You guys are terrible. We hate you. And I said, okay. <laughs> that's fine. And, um, so we tried to kind of become, we play those shows and, and be friends with those bands. So let's say M80 is headlining the living room. We might be like, Oh, can we open for that show? And we made it like pretty quickly. We made it, um, like a consistent thing that whenever we saw a show that we could even conceivably be part of, we would reach out and say, Hey, we're this band. Um, here's a couple songs from ours. We'd love to play the show. If there's any opening spots, uh, no big deal. If not, please keep us in mind for the future. Any show that was remotely close to us, remotely close to our genre, we would reach out and do that. Mm -hmm. and so we just started playing the living room all the time. It's funny because the, the podcast is specifically called where the living room used to be. And I'm like, it, it, that's just the name of the podcast because of the local scene around it. But for us, the living room really was our home for many, many years. So it was that kind of stuff where sometimes you play the living room on an off night and, mm -hmm. you know, there's only 20 people there. But then sometimes you play it and there's 400 people there for just a local show. Mm -hmm. So that exactly. was a huge thing. And, and I think getting in with the local bands, with the local scene and becoming friends with those guys and you know saying hey you know we're doing a cd release party hey slick willie do you want to be on it we're we're friends with you and we think you're great guys and they say yeah that's great and then they have a cd release party and they get us on it yeah and i think that slowly helped everybody grow 
And at the time, we were really, really blessed with a lot of uh, punk bands and ska bands that would tour, and they would tour with maybe one direct support act, and they were open to local openers. Yeah, which yeah. eventually went away. I, I, I yeah, I don't know what happened, but yeah, it doesn't seem like that. No one tours like that anymore. There's yeah. like no local yeah. support. For... I, I know it's it's funny because I I kind of wish I knew someone that was really in the booking world to have some insight on this i'm like did we just come up at a weird time or was it the area but it felt like you know catch 22 is coming around and they're playing with this band mm -hmm. and they need an opener or or even i remember we played with whole wheat bread and gym class heroes at the living room like what kind of tour is that that you don't that you're you need a local opener it's so bizarre yeah yeah but, <clears throat> but luckily it happened a lot so we got to open for Catch Twenty Two, Streetlight Manifesto, uh, Less Than Jake, the Ataris, but but there was a lot of bands that were doing that, and so I think that we had the benefit of, you know, a great band um, like Streetlight Manifesto would come play the living room and they'd fill it up, and obviously they're amazing, and we'd get to play in front of those people. Five percent of the crowd would like us, and so mm -hmm. those people would go on, yeah, to maybe come to our shows. And you know, we just slowly kept pulling that five, that five. Yeah, you know yeah, what I mean. Exactly. It builds up though. Exactly, and that was combined with this local scene, where there was a lot of people who actually didn't even care about the touring bands and the bigger bands, and they really, really cared more about supporting the arts that were coming from people in the community. Mm -hmm. So all of that came together, and I do think that one of the cornerstones of our band that I um, think was very important for us was that we were not scared to really put in the hours of like i said promoting mm -hmm. burning cds and also continually trying to book shows continually trying to play shows trying to do show swaps with bands from other places and it was that real diy let's grow mentality that we had for a long time which i think got us to the point where you know some bands that would come through lupos would be like oh we don't have an opener and like someone from lupos would just be like do you guys want to play the show and it would be in front of like a ton of people mm -hmm. um and also i think along the way you know we won uh best punk band in providence in uh I'm trying to think if it was was it providence monthly or what yeah it was providence monthly we won it in motif uh multiple yeah. years and like kind the phoenix, of, yeah. yeah phoenix that's what it was and we won all these different things and i think that that kind of helps when we're like Hey, uh, less than Jake, can we open for you in Connecticut? Here's a couple of things we won. Here's a song, whatever. Here's, you know, even at the time, probably MySpace followers or whatever. Mm -hmm. And that I think would also help us. So it was the real grinding for years, just like clawing our way up and having enough uh, shows under our belt and recorded music and, and whatever local kind of accolades and stuff um, where these bands would trust us. And what eventually, yeah, so, so you know, we played a lot of great shows um, with a lot of bands we looked up to. And it was, uh, you know, some of the favorite times of my life. Lupo's was awesome. And it's funny because I eventually looked back at the band and all the shows we did. And we ended up playing more shows at Lupo's than we ever did at the living room, which sounds that's incredible insane. It sounds crazy. Yeah, yeah. It, it feels like it feels like we slept at the living room. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, but uh yeah, we. I mean, we like I said, it's funny because I, I'm, and, and off the top of my head, it's tough. I mean, we played a million shows with Biggie in the Kids Table. We played a million shows with Bad Fish, uh, who were, you know, pretty kind to us. Definitely more uh, businessy. Definitely more like dealing with a manager and the ticket. You know, this is actually you're gonna 
exchange money for tickets and then get whatever. Yeah. Which a lot of people are very much against. And I totally understand that. Um, but at the time it was like, we really want to move forward. And, uh, you know, we, we would have a thing where I'm like, well, if we can do a headlining show and pull 200 people, then we can sell to a hundred tickets for the show. So we would take these opportunities and it would really help us grow. And I, after we did that a few times, they stopped making us do that. And they said, well, we just trust you guys to promote and pull people out. Um, yeah. But yeah, a lot of bands, uh, like I said, Street of the Manifesto, Catch-22, Big D in the Kids Table, Less Than Jake, Leftover Crack was a big one for me. I know that's not a huge name, but like for me, I, I really liked that band a lot at the time. Um, and we got to play these big shows with these bands and just kind of feel like um, we were moving forward. And mm -hmm. eventually, I think what happened was, especially with the paper and plastic thing, we had just recorded a lot of music and we were really proud of what we had eventually recorded you know it's like when you're a musician you know you do your first recording and you're like this rules and a year later you're like oh my god yeah, <laughs> i can't get... believe i bought that out you know <laughs> and then you record yeah. another thing and you're like this now this rules and a year later you're yeah, like yeah. what am i doing yeah, and that yeah. kept happening and so eventually we i think we did a bunch of recordings that we were happy with and um it's funny because i don't remember why i would even do this but i did reach out to jr from less than jake who was the person who owns paper and plastic records and I said, listen, man, like we have this collection of songs that we're actually really proud of. We put out a bunch of releases independently over the years. Here's the shows we've played. We've played with you, just so you know. Um, yeah. And uh, I was like, you know, we'd love to put out the album with paper and plastic. And it was really like, I think it was more of like a Hail Mary play because I do think I reached out to a few labels at that time with really no hope that anything would happen. But I honestly think just kind of using this as a pivot point to talk about this one of the things that really helped us was us saying okay uh 98 times out of 100 we're gonna get no's or no answer so that just means we got to reach out 100 times more than we mm -hmm. want to and so accepting the no's accepting rejection and knowing that that was the you know the most likely possibility all the time whether it was opening for bands or or, or doing anything uh, I think it made us just work harder and and reach out to more places, uh, and which is why we got on these shows and why we were able to move forward and why we got signed to Paper and Plastic. So we reached out to Jr. and he started going back and forth with me, which really surprised me. And he was like, "Yeah, this sounds cool," uh, you know. Um, and he eventually just said, "Like, yeah, let's do it." And so, it honestly, it moved kind of slow for like nine months. And it, the whole time, okay. I'm like, well, we're not going to actually, it's not going to work. It's not going to work out. It doesn't make any sense. But eventually, it did. And we worked with him. And they put out, uh, Paper and Plastic put out our album, The Best Revenge. I designed the album artwork. Uh, and they actually put out like this like custom skull because they would put out these like custom skull toys once in a while with their releases Yeah, uh, called The Sound of the Skull, I think. And it was based on the artwork of our album. Like it was all the okay. colors. Of it was really, really cool. So if you pre-ordered it, you'd get the album and you'd get the skull. Um, but yeah, it was, it was, it was pretty incredible to be able to do that. We're, you know, we were super thankful. We were really surprised that it worked out that way, but mm -hmm. it was really, it was, it was amazing. It was uh, something that um, we didn't expect and we're mm -hmm. still really, really thankful for. I've never been so sick, so tired. Jones, and I'll never 
person i should thank along the way that really helped us and actually got us our biggest shows ever i'll tell you this quick story and i, I it's a fun one and a sad one and a, and a cool one so uh our original basis was kevin silva and mm -hmm. it was eventually it was myself as the the singer and rhythm guitarist kevin was the singer and bassist we had a lead guitarist named tom and my drummer christian that i talked about we had played these shows we were doing all this stuff we're building up and we had this headlining show of our own at the living room with we got our friends uh stealing jane to be on it from new york they were they were also amazing guys um and uh, someday providence was on it and we were really working hard to get people to come out to this headlining show and leading up to the show um kevin was really distant kevin was being really distant and at the time he was a very unreliable dude very like insanely unreliable lots of tension and okay. leading up to the show, we were like, man, like, we're working really hard. I think the show's going to go good. And I remember right before the show, um, we booked a show in Boston the next day. It was a matinee show. I think it was at the Middle East upstairs. Um, so I'm like, okay, so Friday night, we have our senior discount, like our big show. And then, you know, one o'clock the next day, we have this matinee show in Boston. And then BRU reached out and they said, hey, we have our rock hunt coming up. And we'd like you guys to be in it this year. And it's that Saturday night. So now oh, we have okay. a show in Providence on Friday. That's our headlining show matinee show uh boston and then Saturday, that night uh bru rock on and we told them we're like we already have a show that weekend is it okay because obviously you don't want to have two shows in the same market at the same time yeah like, you know you have a show that's okay we're coming to you we're asking you if you'll do this so i said okay so kevin's being really distant and we all go out to dinner the night before the big show and we say to him point blank are you leaving the band like what's happening you know did you if you're being really weird you're being really distant what's going on he's like I'm not leaving the band. He's like, I love the band. It's really important to me. Of course, I'm not leaving the band. We go, okay. We go play the show. 500 people come to the show, which was our biggest headlining show for sure, ever. <laughs> we're playing, you know, we're, we're so psyched. Uh, Someday Providence is great. Stealing Jane is great. I believe Someday Providence was on. I know, I know Stealing Jane was on. Someday Providence was always great with us, and we played with them a million times. So that's why it's in my head that they were there. But uh, we go play our show. We're about to play our last song and kevin goes up to the mic and he goes thanks everybody for coming out this is my last song with senior discount and he just lied to our faces the night before and he quit live on stage and i was livid mm -hmm. and obviously so hurt and we had two more shows in the next 24 hours and i was like what the fuck are we gonna do about this um and after the show uh he's like listen i am going to play the next two shows you know whatever he was fine with lying and uh so 
we go play the, the show the matinee show in boston we're not talking by the way we're fuck i'm i'm so mad we're not talking go to the next show go to the rock hunt show we play that show we're not talking which is really weird for us because our shtick was definitely that we were funny on stage and fun and yeah. so it was really hard to pretend to do that through the anger and deceit and at the show so weird one of the judges was a guy named greg gillis and that is the dj girl talk he's a mashup dj okay. huge at the time i was unaware stupid just ignorant of it and at the end of the show he talked to us and he said like he didn't even talk to me i think he talked to christian and kevin if i remember correctly and he said you guys are awesome i really love this and uh Kevin was like, can I give him a DVD? I'm like, yeah, give him a DVD. Gave him a DVD. We get a text that night at like two in the morning. And it's like, you guys have just been added to the Girl Talk show at Toad's Place in Connecticut. It's already sold out. And okay. we're like, what? And honestly, that show didn't end up working out because of a, a really sad situation with one of our uh, one of our guitarist friends. Who he couldn't be there for a specific reason. It was just like a thing that she was going through, and he had to be out of state. But Greg Gillis, girl talk, just I don't know why he liked us a lot, and he put us on a bunch of monstrous, monstrous shows, including he was playing two nights at the House of Blues in Boston, sold out both nights, thirty five hundred people both nights. Night one, Sean Kingston and girl talk. Night two. <laughs> senior discount and girl talk <laughs> don't ask me why yeah yeah, yeah. no idea he's the nicest guy ever i have to i have to shout him out in this story because it was important yeah for some reason he gave us these shows it was incredible that's, that's it, yeah. it, it, was, it was it was amazing i mean that's that is the single biggest show we ever played was the house of blues in boston sold mm -hmm. out um but yeah so that weekend was really pivotal for the band because Kevin quit on stage and he left the band and we added Alan Souza as the bassist. And also because our, we had this relationship with girl talk that we really never expected mm -hmm. ever to happen. And those were the biggest shows the band ever played. And I think that that helped us too, because now we have these professional pictures of us live in these settings and this video, yeah. and all these different, you guys things. can do this. So it, it just, exactly. Yeah. So that kind of, I mean, a lot of, I think a lot of moving forward in any creative space is saying, uh, where do I have the, where, where can I get to? It's like, I can get a tiny, tiny bit higher than I am. Okay. Go there and then show the people above you that you got there and then yeah. go there and show the people above you got there. And I think a lot of that was just inching and inching and inching along. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, so that was a really pivotal weekend and I, I needed to kind of shout out Greg because he was so instrumental in, uh, in the biggest things we ever got to do. Mm -hmm but yeah. yeah so those those were really really fun i remember we played at the house of blues it's one of those things where like you know our experience as a band you know we're just like dumb punk rock guys we're, we drive up to a place we we go in we we you know we do all our own stuff but that house of blues it's like we go in they're like what do you guys want from catering here's your hospitality agent and you're like what are you talking about like we, we don't yeah, even yeah. know they're like oh there's a lot of salmon upstairs and we're so stupid my drummer christian he goes up to the table and like there's all this food and, and we're all like you know we think this is the coolest thing ever i, I must have eaten two pounds of salmon <laughs> and he has these mashed potatoes and right next to it there's this big brown bowl of liquid and he's like oh gravy i love gravy he's putting it all over everything goes to bite into it and it's just balsamic dressing <laughs> yikes uh 
<laughs> and I'm like, of course you do that in front of all these people. Yeah, yeah. For the first time. But yeah. yeah. So yeah, so it was, you know, we played a, a lot of really, really fun shows. Lupo's, we played a lot of times in front of tons mm -hmm. of people. Bad Fish was really instrumental in that. But we, we played with a lot of uh, interesting bands at Lupo's as well. But House of Blues in Boston was big. Toad's Place in Connecticut, we ended up playing as well. And that was huge. Um, mm -hmm. And then a bunch of places around, really mostly, I'd say, Connecticut, Boston, Rhode Island, and then kind of venturing out into New Jersey, New York, uh, mm -hmm. you know, Vermont, that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, and, and, to, and to be completely honest, I liked the shows with 12 kids at it mm -hmm. as much as the shows with 3,500 kids at it. I remember that we, I still, I want to put this video out at some point. Uh, GameStop in Seekonk, Massachusetts hired us to come play in the parking lot for a Call of Duty video game release night. Oh, cool. Very cool. Very strange. We went, we were going to go, and then it was just pouring. Oh, and we were no. to play outside, so it's like, what are we going to do? And I'd say maybe 15 kids showed up that were fans of ours that were hoping to see us. Yeah. And so we said, well, we can't go do it. We can't plug in our PA. We can't plug in our stuff. So we went under the awning and we got our acoustic guitars and we just did an acoustic show with no microphones and no anything. And we have the footage of it. And it's like one of my favorite things we ever got to do. It was yeah. awesome. It was yeah, so much like fun. This. Yeah, those moments are really nice when you just yeah have to kind of respond to the situation and it just can make these yeah. kind of magical, unique experiences. That's that's incredible. But yeah, it's 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 interesting because like you know, everyone wants to play the big thing and, and do the biggest thing they could possibly do, but it also you gotta realize that there's an exchange of intimacy. Mm -hmm. You know, like I know the people that were there at that Best Buy acoustic show it was under because Best Buy was next to the GameStop. So um and uh I know the people that were there and I don't know the people that were at the house of blue show, you know, it's yeah. that kind of weird exchange, exactly. even yeah. though that was like a high point as well. Um, mm -hmm. I actually, I do have another fun one that was really, really special to me. So we did that first movie premiere in 2007 and going into 2010, we were like, Oh, it'd be fun to do something like that again. And we said, well, what if we do like an anniversary screening and we film some stuff that's new for it. Mm -hmm. And the reason I think we decided to do that was because we started working with hot topic at the time they were doing this series that seems pretty short-lived because I don't know a lot of bands that did this where they would just have acoustic in-store performances from, lo from local bands. Oh, okay. It was really cool. I thought it was, I'm like, I think a lot of, uh, you know, big brand stores that are based like, you know, Newberry Comics, FYE, whatever yeah. time. I'm like, yeah. I think that's cool. I think it's a kind of a fun thing to do. It seems like a win-win from, from my point of view. Um, and they had us do a bunch of those. And so we are preparing a lot of our songs to be played acoustic. And they asked us to do one at the Providence Place Mall. And so we said, oh, you know what? Let's do the anniversary screening the same night. So maybe it'll be like, you know, at 6.30 p.m., Senior Discount's going to do an acoustic performance at the Hot Topic. And then at 7.30 p.m., we're going to all go upstairs and we're going to go have the movie premiere. And the, the Hot Topic stuff was always free. So it's yep. not like anyone had to buy a ticket to that. And the ticket to movie was 10 bucks. So you pay 10 bucks and you go at 630, see a show, go upstairs and see a movie. It's, 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 it's great. And we ended up shooting. Like, I was like, we're going to shoot, you know, 15 minutes of new stuff. We shot like 55 minutes of new stuff. So we had to basically re-edit the movie and take out, you know, 70% of it. But we shot oh, wow, all okay. summer. It was awesome. It was awesome. But we shot all summer. We prepared all summer. We came up with this really cool idea that I really wish we documented more, 
which was that we wanted it to be full band acoustic. So we had two acoustic guitars, acoustic bass, and we built a drum set uh, for our drummer, Christian. We built it together out of uh, trash cans. Like, okay, we, we went to a Home Depot with drumsticks and we went around all the trash cans they had and we found the best ones to replicate the sound of a bass drum, a floor tom, you know, all these different things, uh, a snare. And we brought it home and like, you know, we kind of, we read up on how to do this and we got this really stiff uh, trash can that was made out of plastic for the snare and we duct taped bags of change around it to give it that snap. So when you hit it, like oh, a okay. snare, yeah. it was really cool and really inventive. We redid our whole set to kind of be, uh, you know, to, 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 to change all the music that it, so it would fit acoustic mm -hmm. and do that. We went to the Hot Topic we set up the drum set and we did the acoustic stuff. The filming was so intense. I didn't sleep for like almost two days before the performance. So I was fucking, I was like a, a mangy cat, you know, getting on stage, <laughs> like staggering. Yeah. You know, I had a needle in my arm. I don't know. So we, uh, <laughs> but so many kids turned up because we didn't really think about it, but we're like, oh, we sold it out last time with 350 people. 350 people will not fit in the hot topic in the Providence Place Mall. So, the hot topic filled up like beyond capacity to the point where we were standing in this corner that they had set up for us and all the kids had to be in between us behind the drum set behind oh, yeah. me, all, so all like in the performance space old school hardcore shows where it's just you know everyone's yeah. everywhere you know dude exactly and spilling out into the like the foyer like the you know the floor and covering that entire area of the floor to the point where the mall security is like you can't do this. You're not yeah, allowed, yeah. you know, you're doing this. And we were just kind of like, let's just keep ignoring them and pretend we don't hear them, pretend we don't see them at security. And we played the show. One of the best show experiences, maybe, maybe the top show experiences, uh, top experience as the band. We did get to film that one, which is awesome. I love the footage from that. And then, you know, we did the set. It was so much fun. It was so much community. All these kids that were like, always at shows people that i could see their faces i know their names i know who they are i know that you know all these different things mm -hmm. then we all went upstairs again sold out the movie theater and it was like that was another like highlight of my life was being able to do all that stuff and like cool. i said it's weird because we got to do the intimacy thing and we got mm -hmm. to do the big thing at that point in time and it was just like incredible that's awesome yeah it was very fun and what are you guys up to now um so what yeah, happened? No, you're still playing, or it's been a, it's been a couple of years, right? But are you guys still chugging along? Yeah, it's tough. So basically, what happened was we got signed in 2000. Uh, I think it was 2018. 18. We did a really, really. It was such a fun uh, um, album release show, actually at the Whiskey Republic outside. And I don't think they did too many shows outside at the Whiskey Republic. They set up the stage. I think maybe like honestly, they probably did a total of two or three ever. Um, and like I've seen like against me at the Whiskey Republic, which also is a thing that they like stopped doing immediately. At first, they were going to have shows there, and then they just became yeah. like a, kind of like a nightclub. Um, but still, I mean, amazing. The Against Me show was amazing that I went to there. Our album release was one of my favorite shows we ever did. We did the album release show, and we were playing some shows. I remember we played with Big D at the Space in Connecticut right out right after that. That was a really really fun show. We were doing some shows, mm -hmm. and then eventually, it's like. Truthfully, it felt like there was a shift where I was like, I really want to do creative work for my job. Yeah. And a lot of the other guys in the band who I love and I'm close to were kind of like, 
we don't really think that that's a possibility and we have real jobs you know and so we can't really devote that much time to the band and so when we got signed there was a part of me who really felt like man like we had so much fun we did so much shit we had so many we played with so many of our hero bands we got signed to this label i'm like i'm happy with what we've accomplished when when we mm -hmm. get signed to paper and plastic i was like this is more than i ever thought we could do and and, mm -hmm. and the collection of memories is more than i ever thought we could achieve um and i kind of tried to come to a place of being like at peace at that time of not pushing super hard because for at least 15 years we were fucking grinding and grinding and to me it was like this is my future this is what i want to do mm -hmm. but luckily i had also been doing so much film production during that time and loving it equally to be completely honest and i was doing more of that stuff and so i was trying to push for the band to keep working and keep uh playing shows and promoting but it was a real struggle with everyone's time and another thing too is like you don't want to get to the point where you're putting in all of the work and becoming resentful of your friends for not matching that yeah yeah and that's something i've learned to balance when i was younger i think i would just put in all the work and get resentful and as i've gotten older i'm more like i think i should check myself and communicate about this and if these people the people i'm working with are not really willing to do that then i have to match that and understand that this is going to be at this level of, of what it's going to be and it's not going to be able to move past it mm -hmm. i was trying to kind of come to peace at that senior discount still important to me all that stuff and then the pandemic hit yeah yeah it was like what can we even do what can we do you know um our guitarist matt his wife was like working in the hospital so they were being ultra careful and uh, about spreading covid and stuff like that and mm -hmm. so at the time we kind of just had to come to like a complete stop and a standstill and during that time i was doing more and more film work in jersey and new york mm -hmm. I, was, I was working with uh this podcast called tell him steve dave for many years at that point in time we were doing more i was working with the director kevin smith at that time and mm -hmm. also during the pandemic i started working with these two comics mark norman and joe list and i was traveling to new york and new jersey a lot comm commuting back and forth to do these film projects yeah and i start and honestly it became a thing where i was getting to be there more and more often so i wanted to move to new york um and i was i, I knew that that meant that it'd be harder to uh focus on the band in rhode island but mm -hmm. luckily i have a house in rhode island you know that i bought a long time ago um and so i was able to come back and work on stuff but i moved to new york um a couple of years ago and it just has been a thing where it's like how could we really get shows practice do all the stuff we need to do especially now the guys are even further into their responsibilities of work and family and kids and mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff so it's even more difficult it, it's it's a thing now where it's like i know when we play a show our guitarist and our bassist they are paying for babysitters to watch their children and so it's yeah. a net loss monetarily for these people now when we play a show we get paid a hundred dollars we split for what you know what i mean it's it's crazy and so there's a, there's a guilt associated with that um so i would love to keep playing i would love to continue to play i still play acoustic all the time i just learned mm -hmm. the solo from johnny be good um and, <laughs> and i hang out with my drummer christian all the time i hang out with my guitarist matt all the time i'd love to see my bassist abe more often he's in worcester um and like i'd love to play shows but i also understand it's tough because when you reach out for a show 
you know, it's it's you're kind of saying like, hey, you guys have an opening spot on the show. Let us play it. And it's like, well, there's also bands that are also trying to still come up that could have that spot that really want to work and, and move forward where we're doing it kind of just for fun. And there's a guilt associated with that. Uh, it's one of those things where I think now, like if Bad Fish is like, we're playing Lupos, you guys want to play? Fuck yeah, dude. Or if or if M80 said, hey, we're doing the reunion show. Do you guys want to play? Fuck yeah. All that kind of stuff. But yeah. on the other side of that, reaching out to do it and then being like, we can't practice that much. We can't promote that much. Like it's going to, you know, that feels a little bit tough for us. Mm -hmm. uh, we did play a show a year ago with the Pilfers at the Met. And yeah, that was yeah. Very, very fun. Um, we had a great time together. Like we all had, we all had a ton of fun backstage. I remember because we hadn't played a show in a while. Mm -hmm. It was, it was the four of us again backstage. We're all joking around like we always have been. We're all having fun and it was awesome. And I loved playing. I love to play. I'd love to be playing music all the time. But there are the mechanics of when you get older and how absolutely yeah you, you not only do you not only do you want to like uh is it hard to put the time aside but it's like i also get to the point where i want to be really good i want mm -hmm. our harmonies to be really tight i want our playing to be really fast and really fucking tight i want people to be impressed with how we do it so i also don't want to play a show where we just show up and say like oh we can't really practice we're okay we're kind of sloppy i don't want to do that i want to really do something fun and great and I think that the time responsibilities to do that are really, really difficult now. Mm -hmm. um, but I'd love to, like, in terms of, is it fun? Do I want to? Yeah. Hell, yeah. And, I, and yeah. I love the guys. I love doing it. Honestly, like, we did this Christmas medley uh, a couple, like, probably in, like, 2012, or th I think. And it's one of the things I'm most uh, proud of, where there's keyboards and there's a little choir in it, and it's amazing. And I want to do a Halloween medley. And I'm oh, like, cool. This is we could figure this out because we can start working on it and emailing and sending ideas back and forth and linking stuff and getting in the studio. That seems doable to me. Um, and I hope, I, honestly, I hope Senior Discount never officially ends. And we always, there's always something new that yeah. might come out eventually, whether it's a recording or a show. But really, we haven't been able to do anything in a long time. But who knows, you know, what the future will hold. I'd love to do the Halloween medley. I'd love to do more acoustic stuff. I'd love to do more like alternative stuff like that acoustic full band performance with the drums. Mm -hmm. Um, so I love it, but yeah, it's, it's, it's gotten really tough to actually, uh, put the time aside for. Yeah, no, and, but it's good uh, that you have that, that awareness and, uh, and yeah, honestly, just keeping that stuff open. Um, oh, yeah. you know, like it doesn't sound like there's any need to, to break up. Uh, you know, right, there's exactly. been a lot of, a lot of bands that break up and have reunion shows and, you know, not whatever that could be, but yeah. you know, I mean, I follow in the footsteps of Fugazi a lot and Ian McKay and stuff. So Fugazi has never broken up, you know? Um, so yeah, right. Um, totally, totally. Bone 
hands of all my yearning Laid out and beckoning still We never talked about goodbye You never asked about our death and I'd love to transition, you know, as you've been playing in this band, you've started the Chuck and Brad podcasts, which is a mm-hmm. big part of, of who you are. Um, yeah. Pretty early on, pretty early adopter of podcasting. I mean, obviously yeah. it's been around for a while, but I mean, back in 2009, mm-hmm. uh, can you talk about how that started? And uh, I mean, from what I, from my research, you had connected with, with Brad from doing some of those videos correct mm-hmm. so some of the the senior discount videos like he was kind of part of that crew but how did the podcast come about yeah so it's it's interesting so for a while our basis was alan souza and he was a super funny guy we, we would write all the videos together it was just us writing them mm-hmm. and he was also doing improv in newport rhode island with uh, the bit players and i would go out and i'd go to their shows here and there and brad Rohr was a guy who was in his improv group mm-hmm so funny so different from us like exact opposite honestly <laughs> i was like this guy's fucking so funny i'm like i'm like let's bring him into the videos let's make him and what we did was by because by that time the videos had become like like you would kind of mention the uh the monkeys meets it's always sunny philadelphia mm-hmm. they had become that and like i remember you know one of the videos was we want to play a show at club hell we caused the fire last time we were there they want a letter from a fire marshal assuring them that well we can do it and like that was the storyline mm-hmm. we came up with this character of bradley stevenson that brad Rohr would play in our videos and he was the head of the rhode island league of decency and his whole mission was to shut down senior discount and get us to stop <laughs> being a band yeah and we kind of put in this this like <laughs> this villain in in our in our videos yeah and of course you know we we put him in as a villain to turn him into our friend. You know what I mean? Like that was the point. I got yeah, yeah. Just to pull him in. Basically the Fast and Furious movies. Um, but he, he started being in the videos, super funny. He started writing with us. He started performing with us. And like I was saying earlier, like the videos got harder and harder to produce because they would take longer to do, you know, technically with the lighting and the audio and, and the editing. Yep. We kind of thought like, you know what? If we pivot to podcasting and doing a podcast weekly, this is in 2009, that can be a new thing for the senior discount website every week, as opposed okay. to a video that comes out only once every nine months or a year at this point in time. And people that, you know, are from different places or maybe aren't in a market where we're going to play soon can come back to our website, see what we're doing, hear about the progress of the band. And the podcast really started as a way to talk about what's going on with senior discount, what's going on with the bit players and Brad's improv group, which eventually became sky punch improv. Mm-hmm. and really talk about our creative lives and honestly what we thought about other creative things happening whether it was movies or music and at first we really expected bands uh to come on and it's funny because you're kind of doing what we originally thought the podcast was going to be oh really okay we, we thought every week we were going to have a musician on from the local scene because we knew so many people by that time you know we had started in 2002 it's 2009 we're like oh we know so many people I'm like oh it's gonna be so easy to do yeah 
Uh, first, people in bands sometimes not great at scheduling and sticking to stuff. <laughs> but also that was combined with the fact that in 2009, a lot of people are like, what are we doing? It's a pod. What's a pod? You know, they didn't know what a podcast was right now. I think in 2023, 2024, people understand what it is. And there's a lot of benefit to this. And they understand what that, what that benefit can be in 2009. Mm -hmm. It did not feel like that. I'm yeah. like, Hey guys from this band, we're playing a show together. Want to come on our podcast and talk about it? And they're like, yeah. And then they're like, wait, what, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? Yeah. And it was a lot of, yeah. people letting us down and us being like oh what are we going to release this week this band canceled last minute again and because of that we kind of turned it into more of like a brad and i joking around telling stories from our lives and mm -hmm. always occasionally having musicians on filmmakers other artists in different ways um and we've had a lot of big people on over the year which years which was great we did a great sit down with dave from big d and the kids table Mm -hmm. um, at his house in Connecticut, and he told us the whole story of Big D, and it was great. Same thing with Chris from Less Than Jake. A lot, a lot of great people have been on, but it was mostly just kind of a place where we could update uh, everyone who enjoys our stuff about what we're doing. But over the years, it, the podcast really became its own thing, mm -hmm. and eventually, uh, we partnered with a comic named Ray Harrington. He's yeah super funny really really great guy he directed his his own documentary be a man that was on hulu he was a bit on conan and he became really close with us when uh brad and i started doing comedy shows at the comedy connection um and so he started being on our podcast really often and he started his own podcast at the same time called ray harrington must content and yep. eventually we were like man you're on our podcast all the time you're doing your podcast and he, i think he was frustrated with his podcast simply because he loves to improvise and play and go back and forth but yeah he was doing a show where he had a new guest on every week oh, so, so like, you don't have that that yeah. interplay you don't have that that yeah that relationship that you can yeah take those jabs or yeah listening to fun bearable what you're getting to it's like oh there can be that recurring thing you know whether you're recording them back to back or whatever it is but you can be like oh this is an ongoing joke you know that you can have so Exactly. When you're doing a, an interview show every week, it's like they don't know your personality. You don't know theirs. So it's hard to really get deeper into that. And so we had a talk and, and we were like, you know, we've done the Chuck and Brad podcast for, I think at that point it was like 14 years or 13. Yeah. Years. I mean, uh, it, yeah. Transition to fun bearable August of 2022. So. Yeah, so that was 13 years at that point, 13 years and like nine months. So mm -hmm. we, uh, we said, let's, let's, you know, let's uh let's end the chuck and brad podcast and start fun bearable and so that went from the chuck and brad podcast with just myself and brad to fun bearable with myself brad and ray mm -hmm. uh, and it was also kind of brought on because i went to new york i moved to new york i started working with mark norman and joe list on their podcast tuesdays with stories i started mm -hmm. working with mike berbiglia on his podcast i worked with drew barrymore on her podcast Tell them Steve Dave, which is uh, the guys from Comic Book Men and Impractical Jokers, Kevin Smith's podcast stuff. And I started working with all these different people in the in the world of podcasting. And mm -hmm. I felt like I had a better handle on what podcasting is currently as opposed to what we started as in 2008. Because again, yeah. just like the videos, you know, we were buying our own server and putting our podcast there because we didn't have, there wasn't the technology to support it yet that was so easily available. Mm -hmm. And it was a combination of man ray fits in with us so well as a third personality and the technology has moved forward so much that we really should kind of start over and do this kind of the right way from day one yeah so 
it eventually became fun bearable which we now do weekly um we we do it out of the basement of the comedy connection east providence rhode island and oh, cool. it's great and it's it's me brad and ray and we have a guest on like occasionally a lot of times it's they come to new york and we'll do some episodes we've had like you know mark norman joe list mike cannon um a lot of great episodes and uh mm -hmm. brad and i will do uh panels once in a while at comic cons yeah. and so we'll release those panels as well as fun bearable episodes where it's like you know uh, I ju we just released one where I have the entire cast of the original 1980s Ninja Turtles cartoon, which yeah, was yeah. like a dream come true. <laughs> and so bizarre yeah. to be on stage with those people and making them laugh. It was so much fun. But yeah, so we kind of like, I, I really look at the podcast and I've always looked at our podcast as like a, what I want to call a creative playground. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you kind of feel the same way where you're like, well, if I'm going to do this all the time, it means that we can try new things and see yeah. what works and then go in different directions if that doesn't work as opposed to doing something that you know you put a ton of time into like like months and months and months it feels like everything has to be perfect with a podcast it's almost like a thing that continuously changes and that's a really fun opportunity for a creative person to be part of uh, sure thing yeah you know kind of even going back you would do these i guess would you say that there were annual shows with chuck and brad podcasts like you would do these like in per, live performances um you know which you have fun bearables winter funderland coming up on february 25th at the comedy connection um so can you yeah talk about what's happening that night you know why people should buy some tickets uh where they can buy some tickets but then yeah how has that like evolved over time yeah, so basically, uh, you know, we were doing the podcast for a while, and I think around episode 300, we were like, let's just do a live episode. Mm -hmm. We did one at the AS220, and it was kind of, again, like this combination of all the stuff because we did a little bit of podcasting. We did some new videos. We premiered some new video stuff there. And then we had the band on stage to do like kind of a talk with the audience, just be like, what do you guys want to talk about? Do you want to hear about anything? Yeah. So at first, I think we were just doing... Uh, kind of like whatever we thought of in the moment. I think we did like a 300th episode live. I think we did a 400th episode live. And then we started doing um, like a, a random stuff at the Comedy Connection here and there. We would do a Christmas show, a Halloween show. Mm -hmm. and they were branded as Chuck and Brad's blank. So it'd be Chuck and Brad's Halloween Spooktacular, Chuck and Brad's best Christmas show ever. Um, mm -hmm. And they were extensions of the podcast. But the truth is we weren't podcasting on stage. It was more like sketch and, and stand up mm -hmm. and that kind of stuff. And videos and pranks and over the years uh those have those have evolved to where we feel like we have a little bit more of a grasp on what we want to do live which is a combination of having uh stand-up comedy on the show obviously with ray harrington being a big part of fun bearable um and uh our buddy doug key is on the show he's going to do stand-up on the show mm -hmm. and kind of combine that with some loose improv improvisational like sketch elements so stuff that's going to be on stage uh that is it's usually us trying to do a thing and failing honestly that's the formula for everything what if we try to do this and here's how it was so bad yeah um, yeah so it's a combination of like uh stand up a little bit of sketch a little bit of video stuff a little improvisational stuff and we've been doing those for a couple of years uh we do a bit actually a lot called bradley drawn where we take a movie like Jurassic Park, classic movie, mm -hmm. and Brad, who is a, ter a terrible artist. I'm talking, this guy should be in jail for the stuff he does. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. And he'll draw every scene from the movie, and then I'll take his drawings, and I'll rewrite the movie based on what they look like. 
<laughs> and then on stage, we show the drawings and we go through it and he has to read the new script for the movie, the new narration for the movie as we go through the drawings and it makes fun of them. And it's so much fun. It's like, it's weird because there's not, I've never seen anything really like this. Mm -hmm. And man, it hits this weird mark of like, you're laughing at how pathetic these drawings are. And then the guy who drew them is making fun of them because he's being forced to with this script. Yeah. And the crowd is so warm in their reaction to it. But that's been kind of the type of thing we do. We do a lot of uh, prank on the performer stuff, which is what I consider impractical jokers to do. You know, they're a hidden camera show, but really the prank is on the actual guys doing it. They're not pranking the people they see. Mm -hmm. They're pranking each other in front of the people they see. And I think we put ourselves, we put each other in a lot of situations like that where we're going to look bad on stage because of what we have to do or what we have to say. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, on February 25th, it's a Sunday at the Comedy Connection in East Providence, Rhode Island. We'll have Fun Bearables Winter Funderland Show where we're going to celebrate some of the other holidays that come in winter that are not quite as beloved. Uh, maybe <laughs> maybe Valentine's Day, maybe President's Day. Who knows? You got Groundhog's Day in there? Oh, hey, hey. hey. No, no spoilers. You got you to come out. You got to come to the show. <laughs> yeah. And so... It is going to be stand-up. It is going to be some sketch, maybe some video elements and some improv elements, but it's a real variety show, but 100% comedy variety show. Um, mm -hmm. And it's going to be really fun. If you go to funbearablepod.com, that's the, the webpage of our podcast, and that has tickets and uh, a Facebook event page for the, for the show, and it gives you all the information for the show, but it's going to be so much fun, and I, I really can't wait to do it. I, and I, I got to say, Ray and Brad, Ray Harrington, Brad Rohr, are two of the funniest people I've ever met in completely different ways. And I feel like I am so lucky to be involved with these two guys. That night, they are going to be hilarious, and I will also be there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so it's, it's going to be very, very fun. And again, it's just, it's just the same kind of evolution that we've always done with the music, mm -hmm. the videos, and the podcast, and the live shows, and, and all the stuff that's kind of all been blended. This is just a part of the, the continual journey, you know? Yeah, that's great. It's fun. Great. It's really, really fun. Well, Chuck, I wanted to ask uh, to, you know, close this, this segment out. Um, what is your greatest musical accomplishment to this point? Wow. Okay, I, I have a, can I have a, can I have a tie between two? Yeah. Okay, so um, I wrote a song a long time ago called uh, Kaylee's Song. This is an acoustic song. Um, it's on our album, And That's Goodbye. And uh, I mean, the, the version that's out is called And That's Goodbye Deluxe because we added some tracks to it later. Okay, yeah. Uh, and That's Goodbye. And it has a song called Kaylee's Song Acoustic, and it's two acoustic guitars, an acoustic bass, and a violin. And I mm -hmm. wrote this this violin part which i had never had done before and um we recorded it and i really didn't know how it would come out because it's one of those things where you know you go in the recording studio a few times with your with your uh your amp and your guitar and stuff and you kind of realize oh we need to do this we need to do this but writing the violin part was really scary to me because i'm like i'm writing this on a guitar i'm hoping this is good mm -hmm. and i'm so happy with the way that it came out because i think it came out really really great I'm really proud of that song. I, I love. I also love acoustic bass. I just think it's an instrument that is underutilized. I think it's so full and warm. It's just one of my favorite instruments. And mm -hmm. um, that recording is one of them. And then the other one is actually the the Christmas medley that we did. 
and it's up on streaming services as just uh, the Christmas medley under uh, under senior discount. And we took seven Christmas songs and we decided to try to kind of put them together. And we had to kind of come up with different styles of how to put them together. Mm -hmm. That was a really great process that we all figured out uh, over the course of a few months. And one of the parts of it was we wanted to do uh, Baby Please Come Home, which is one of my favorite Christmas songs. But I wanted all the music to drop out and just have a chorus uh, of all women doing a, a build up to the to the to the song coming back in. And it was sung by uh, my cousin, Elizabeth Dennis, my mom, Patricia Staten, my ex-girlfriend, Alyssa Hosey. And I believe her name is Michaela Rogers from Christian's uh, music school at the time, my cousin Christian's music school at the time. And they came in after we had arranged this this choir with all these different harmonies and these different parts. And those four people killed it. It was so good. And it's shocking to me that that part of a song is in one of our senior discount songs. So I think mm -hmm. it's the violin in Kaylee's song acoustic and the core, the choir part in uh, senior discounts, Christmas medley. Those are probably two of my favorite musical accomplishments. Cool. Yeah, it was great. I, I really appreciate everybody that contributed to that stuff because everyone was so good. That's awesome. Yeah, great stuff. Yeah. Well, Chuck, thank you for sharing all this about your your musical history. Uh, learned a lot about Senior Discount and, you know, an incredible piece of, of Rhode Island music history, man. So I appreciate you sharing that. Oh, yeah. thank Oh, dude, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Love the show. I listened to many, many episodes. I think you're doing a great thing here. Thank you. Absolutely.
season. And I'll never be set free 